If you brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark's Gospel that we've been studying together, or you can pull a Bible right out of the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 1067. If it's more comfortable for you, you can just watch and, and read with me on the screen behind me. We're uh, going back and looking at the beginning of the fourth chapter of the gospel of Mark, and we're specifically uh, taking a bigger view of uh, what Jesus is doing in uh, his ministry. Mark does not record a whole lot of Jesus' teaching. In fact, he records very few of his parables. And so the natural question is when he gives us some teaching and specifically a parable, we have to ask, why this one? He taught a lot of parables and the other gospels. Why did Mark want this one? And so with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, He began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell on thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell on good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and there are the ones along the path where the word is sown, where they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are those, are the ones who hear the word 
and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we see Jesus. That the gospel that is sown into our hearts bears fruit. And that everyone in the room can hear and understand and believe. And because they understand and believe, your spirit bears fruit. Some for 30, some for 60, and some for 100. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The message of Christianity is what our text is about. I have a little bit of interest in that, and I hope you do as well, is what is the message of Christianity? What is the the message that God has given the church to tell the world? But what we don't sometimes appreciate is that quite there are other messages that are competing against the single message of the church. And if you ask people on the street corners, what's Christianity all about? And some sadly would say that Christianity is about what it's against. That is, when people began to identify Christianity, they began to identify all the things that we think are unbiblical or unhelpful or, or not good, not beautiful, not true. But there's another message out there if you ask people about Christianity, and Christianity is about the rules that you keep. And it seems like those rules change. And still others, Christianity is about accommodation. The culture has changed, and so why doesn't the church ever change? And all of those seem to be in competition against the message of the church. And so, in some ways, we're losing the message. And so, what is the message? In order to understand the message of Christianity, we have to go back to the very beginning of the book of Mark. Because the key statement that Jesus makes when he is baptized, is the message of the church. Because it was his message. And it goes like this in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. What he means by that is, it's time now. We've been waiting a long time, but the time has come. It is right. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel, and follow me. And you see, when people hear that message, it tends to elicit a response. And some people who hear the message that the kingdom of God is at hand, they see it as a threat. And others are attracted by it because they've been looking for a kingdom. But more importantly, they've been looking for a king. A benign, beautiful, caring, gracious king. And so when they hear Jesus, they will say in chapter 2, we never saw anything like this. We have never heard anyone teach like this. Who is this? Jesus. And so my question to us is, does our culture, does our city say this about us? Do they ever look at us? Do they ever hear us and say, we have never seen anything like them? We have never heard a message like theirs. And if not, why not? Or are we more like the Pharisees? 
When we see Jesus' ministry, we see in chapter 2, they ask the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That is, when we look at the people he's drawing, they're not our people. They're not the people that we like to hang out with. They're the sinners. And he does the most intimate thing you can do outside of marriage with them. He eats with them. He gives them a place at his table. Jesus' response for that in the same chapter, the very next verse of chapter 2, verse 17, it is not the well who need the physician, but the sick. For I came to seek and to save the lost, not those that believe that they are already found. The kingdom of God is what he's talking about, that it is coming And so we have to ask the question, what is it? And then once we answer what the kingdom of God is, how does it work? How does it come? And then last, in verse 11, there's something about a secret that's being revealed. And so what is that secret? So first, we have to look at the context to understand the kingdom of God. We see in verses 1 and 2, again, a large crowd. In fact, our text adds the adjective... A very large crowd. Most scholars believe this is the largest crowd Jesus attracted on his earthly uh, ministry. And they have gathered around him at the lake, what, what is called the Sea of Galilee, where there are some boats. And he climbs into a boat and they pull off a little bit of offshore and all the people gather around the coastline. And there's two reasons he gets into that boat, I think. The first one is self-preservation. There are so many people pressing on Jesus, hundreds if not thousands, that for his very life he needs to get a little separation so that he can talk. And then secondly, and I, and I, and I think in the 21st century we don't really appreciate this, when you're speaking to thousands of people... It's hard for people to hear you without an amplification device. The first amplification device in human history was water. That is, is if you have a large crowd to speak to, you can get in a boat and upon the water and the sound travels on water. It, It becomes your megaphone. In the 17th and 18th century, when the evangelists George Whitfield came to the United States to preach the gospel when his friends John and Charles Wesley came. They had revivals. And where they had revivals were not in churches because you can only fit so many. When they had hundreds if not thousands of people to listen to them, they went down by the water because it became a natural megaphone for these folks who did not have microphones in which to hear. And so Jesus is upon the water because it's pragmatic as well as preserving him. He's teaching, but his teaching is couched in a parable. And a parable is simply a metaphor who has common attributes or common characteristics with what it illustrates, what it points to. And in this text, he's comparing the kingdom of God to farming, specifically to sowing seed to planting. And he's saying there's some common characteristics in planting seeds that's similar to the, how the kingdom of God grows. 
And so, the parable here of sowing seeds. The kingdom of God is like sowing seeds in four soils. He says, first of all, when he's scattering the seed, and that's the way they did it, we tend to think of, uh, of our gardens where we take seeds and we uh, dig a little hole and we put the seed and we keep moving along. But when you've got vast fields, you're scattering it. You've prepared the soil and you're scattering it. And some of it falls on uh, the paths that are around the fields. That is, if you're scattering, you're indiscriminately uh, uh, moving the seed over all the different kinds of soil that are around the field. And some of it, because they pat it down by walking, they don't want to walk where they plant seeds, where they intend a crop to grow. So they walk on these paths... And because that is the only place they walk, they get as hard as a, as, a, as a pan. And so when seed falls on that part of the field, it is so hard that the seed can't go into the soil and therefore uh, 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 sprout its roots and grow its fruit. And so as a result... The birds see that. They've been waiting for uh, the sowing season because they know that when the farmer sows seed, there's going to be seed on the hard pan and they just wait till he throws it and then they come down and have a picnic. So some of the gospel goes out that way. People hear it, but it changes nothing because the heart is hard. And then secondly, there's a there's part of the field that they have that's very thin. If you, it, you don't think of the United States this way, but much of the world, particularly in Palestine, much of the land is limestone that has a very thin layer of dirt or soil on top of it, about three inches. And so part of the scattering of the seed goes on that part that hasn't uh, been plowed, hasn't been prepared because it, it's got limestone and there's nothing you can do about that. And so when that seed falls, it's, it's got some soil, but not deep enough for the roots to grow deep. And so it has shallow roots. And when the sun comes up and it's hot and beats on the crop, then it's not long before it withers and dies. And sometimes the gospel is like that. There's the beginning, the people hearing it and responding to it, even with joy, but it's not long before just the circumstances of life. Just kill it off. And then some seed falls on what is called here thorny soil. What that means is is that when you plow a field, sometimes in some parts of your field are other plants. And because you don't have pesticides and things that kill off, you have to plow it under. And if you don't dig it up by its root, even though you might chop it level with the field, when you plant the seed... What grows? Whatever was there plus whatever you planted. And, and in some cases, thorn bushes that got leveled still have their roots and they're growing up at the same time. The plant that you planted, the crops that you planted, and these thorn bushes, and they grow together. And which do you think is more hardy in the beginning? Well, obviously it's the thorn bushes because the cares of the world begin to rob the trust in the, in the gospel faith in the gospel. And then the fourth, the intended soil for the seed is called good soil. 
the place where the heart is being changed and when the seed of the gospel comes in, it transforms. And the way that we know that it is good soil is not because we ask the University of Maryland to come in and do a soil sample. It is because it bears fruit. You see, you don't know it's good soil until it starts bearing fruit. And that's the evidence that it is the place where the gospel has gone in and taken root and growing. Remember, this is about the coming kingdom of God. We know that because in verse 9 he says, He who has ears, let him hear. But we also know in verse 10 that nobody understands. They hear, but they don't understand. And specifically, even the disciples don't understand because as soon as they get him alone, they say, hey, Jesus, you know, we didn't want to embarrass ourselves by mentioning this with the crowds, but we don't understand this. Can you explain? The, and they use plural, but the only parable that is given us here is the singular one about sowing. And so before explaining, let's think about kingdoms just for a second. What makes a kingdom a kingdom? What are the marks of a kingdom? There are only three. You've got to have these three things for there to be a true kingdom. There has to be a king. For a kingdom to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. And in the kingdom of God, there is a king. There is a king who is the king of kings and lord of lords. And the way he's been introduced to us over the last two chapters is that he's the lord of the Sabbath and that he's the lord of the storms. And what he's saying by introducing Jesus that way, this king rules over the spiritual realm. That's the Sabbath. But he also rules over the physical realm, the storms. We don't have a king that is limited by either being a spiritual king or a physical king. Our king is the king of kings and lord of lords. But secondly, not only... Do kingdoms have kings, but kingdoms have subjects? That is, you could be a king all day long, but if nobody's following you, if you have no subjects, you're a king in your mind only. And so the kingdom of God is no different. And we saw in chapter 2 that the, I mean in chapter 1, that, the, that this kingdom has three marks for its subjects. They repent. They believe in the gospel, and they follow Jesus the King. Repent, believe, and follow. We, we said back in chapter 1, that's the, that's the kingdom dance. That's the dance of the gospel that we, that we hear and we respond. And the way we respond is that we repent. We turn from the other kingdoms. We turn from the other values. We turn toward our King. And we believe that the gospel that He came to die for us in our place. And that's how we are forgiven and brought into the kingdom. And then ultimately, the subject, it has to have fruit. That is, it has to bear fruit. And, and, and part of that is, and most of that is following Jesus. And, and you know that's true. When you first become a Christian, when you first hear the gospel and you first respond in joy, this idea of the Christian dance, you're not very good at any of the steps. Maybe you can't hear the music, you can't hear the beat, or just simply you, don't, you have two left feet. It doesn't really matter. You, you don't repent well. You, we, don't, uh, we don't believe well, and, and, and we don't follow. But as we grow and get a little more mature and we get a little better at our steps, we, 
we've got that repent down, but we don't have the believing down and, and we're certainly not following well. And then as we become more mature, we, we begin to these three steps of being in the kingdom become more natural to us, more, more, more understandable and part of our lives. But that does not mean that we don't fall in any of the three or all three in the dance. Until Christ returns, we'll be dancing this dance, but we will stumble and fall. The very third mark of the kingdom, if the first one is kingdoms have kings, the second one, the kingdoms have subjects, the third is the kingdoms have boundaries. They have a place of rule where they are sovereign. In one sense, the rule of the kingdom of God is in the hearts of his people, the people who are performing the dance, who can do the dance, who believe the gospel and are repenting and following. But in another sense, as Abraham Kuyper, the old theologian from Europe, used to say that when God sees this blue ball, when God sees this world, he says, every square inch is mine. So in one sense, God's rule is very spiritual in the hearts of his believers. But in another way, it's physical. Everything is God's. And it's an already and not yet. Already he is king of kings and lord of lords. But not everybody has bent the knee. And not every area has come under his uh, rule and sovereignty. But it will one day. And that is what is being preached about our kingdom So as we return to the parable, how does the kingdom come? The kingdom comes, we learn in verse 14, as like a sowing a seed. Jesus is sowing the word. Isn't that what verse 14 says? That the seed is the word. Specifically, it's the gospel. What God has done for us to bring us into the kingdom of God. The gospel is that the king has come. And the gospel is that the kingdom is coming. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God to us, to this world. And someday, his kingdom will replace every kingdom on earth. Including this one we live in now. This is Jesus' message. The king has come. The kingdom is coming. But it is also the church's message, isn't it? That our king came. He lived the life we should have lived but failed to live and failed to live continually. But he's also came to die the death that we cannot die in our place. In order to bring us into this kingdom that is being established first in our hearts And then every square inch. Yes, there are competing messages, but they are powerless to change. They're powerless to transform. They're powerless to do anything of eternal value. That's why Paul will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in chapter 1 of Romans. For it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. It's being revealed from faith to faith for in it the righteousness of God. That's why Paul loves the gospel, because this scattering seed is the power of God to save. How? 
You see it in verse 20. He says, But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, and they accept it, and they bear fruit. And that fruit is 30-fold, 60-fold, and even 100-fold. So how does the gospel change? How does the gospel save? It must be heard. That is, the gospel, in order for it to take root, in order for it to bear fruit, it's more than hearing, but it is never less than hearing. That's what Paul means in Romans 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they saved? They're saved because they hear. How will they call upon the name of the Lord unless they hear? And how will they hear if no one preaches? And how will anyone preach if no one is sent? Do you hear what he's saying? That the very basis of the scattering of the seed is that the gospel has to be preached. Gospel has to be broken out over tea and coffee in the coffee shops of Annapolis, in the restaurants, in your neighborhoods, in your homes, and even in the church. That's what he means. But it's not just something we hear. He says that we have to accept it. And and that means to trust it, to believe in it, to rely your life on it. It's not merely to hear, but to believe. And if we hear, and if we believe, it bears fruit. In one way, it bears fruit is the very fact that you claim to be a follower of Christ. That can only happen by a transformation from death to life. Everyone in here who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ has already experienced their first resurrection. They went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And that is as much of a miracle as the physical resurrection to come. And that's already happened in you. And you bear testimony to that. But it's not only bearing fruit that way. If the gospel is believed and the spirit is at work in you, it changes your character, transforms who you are because there is fruit of the spirit. We know that because that's what Galatians 5 tells us. It says that the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You can pray for that, but there's no plan to develop more patience. There's no Step one to a more self-control. That's the work of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of man. Can you fake these things? Yes. Paul Tripp calls it stapling fruit onto the tree that has no fruit. We can fake this. But for you're talking about to bear fruit, it has to be the work of the Spirit. But not only that, there's a third, and I, and I think in a lot of churches that love truth, they miss out one of the pieces of fruit that is bearing in a place that is preaching the gospel is conversion. There are a lot of churches have somehow convinced themselves that if they're just faithful to the word, that's bearing fruit enough. Did you know that most of American churches have plateaued or in decline. And they are not seeing people come to Christ when God meant for the church to bear fruit. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, when we're faithful to believe, 
it bears fruit. Now look at the secret. There's the surprise in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom. On the one hand, the word is the message. In one hand, it's what we preach about what Jesus has done is the message of the church. But it is also a person. That's why it's the secret. They had Jesus in their midst, but they didn't even know who he was. They thought of him as a great teacher or a great moral example, but they missed the fact who walked among them. You know who gets that is John. When John writes his gospel, he doesn't start out with the birth of Christ or the baptism of Christ. He starts out and he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then down in 14, he makes this bold statement, in case you missed it, in case I missed it. This word dwelt among us. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not saying it's just simply the message of the church. There's a person. Is the word. Hebrews 1 says it this way, long ago. And at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, then how does seed produce fruit. John 12 tells us that unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. And typically we've applied that to ourselves, that if we don't die to ourselves, we can't bear this kind of fruit. And there is truth to that. But John 12 wasn't about us. It was about Jesus who came into this world To be the seed that was scattered and once in the ground dies. And it is by his death on a cross that it bears fruit into the world. We tend to think, as we look at America, that there's not as much fruit as there used to be here. Statistics show that only about 15% of America attended the church in 1776. That's not far from where it is today, at least in our area of the country. And so you look at that and you say, well, we're not, we're not bearing a hundredfold. We might be 30-fold. But that fails to look at what God's doing in the world. If you want to see where the 60-fold and the hundredfold are, you're going to have to get in a plane. And you're going to have to fly down to South America or to Asia or, or to Africa. Because there, it's not 30-fold, it's not even 60-fold, it's 100-fold. Their problem isn't that they don't have preachers of the gospel. Their problem is they don't have enough people to disciple the people who are coming to Christ. whole different problem than we have. The cross bears fruit because the Savior, the seed, the Word died. It fell into the ground and it is bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit right here in our church, in our families, 
It's bearing fruit in our city. It's bearing fruit in our country. It's bearing fruit in the world. Not because we have died, but because He has. And because He has, He bids us to come and die. For the sake of the scattering of the gospel. And sometimes people are going to hear that and they're a well-worn path and it won't go into the soil because it's just too, the hearts are just too hard. And maybe that's what we've got mainly in the United States. I don't know. Or maybe the gospel is going out and it's going out into a thin layer onto a heart. And though it starts out with lots of joy and excitement, but it doesn't last long until it disappears. And sometimes our children are like that. When we look back... They seem to have had great faith when they were in grade school and high school, but as soon as they got away from us, it all kind of drifted away. Or maybe the seed of the gospel went in and took root, but it took root right beside the thorn bush. And when the cares of the world, when the persecution came, when things got hard, they just choked the life out of them. But I do know this, there are plenty of us and plenty in our community that were good soil. How do we know? It's not because we asked the University of Maryland's agriculture department to come and do a sample. It's because we can see the fruit. We hear the testimonies of what is God is doing in our lives as we seek to dance this dance together where we repent We believe this gospel, and we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we gather together to think of the bigger picture of the kingdom of God, which is at hand, that we don't forget that the king has already come. The crown went to the cross and died there. And we are seeing the fruit of that investment grow. Sometimes it's 30 And sometimes it's 60, and sometimes it's 100-fold. We just want to be faithful to scatter the seed and trust the Spirit to do His work. Help us, Father, to be trusting and watching and caring and walking with this message of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.